television threatened to destroy radio. But another invention, the transistor, made radio more important and useful than ever. Radio lives today as a vital medium for bringing news, discussion, and music to millions of listeners all over the world. It's John Lydon of Public Image Limited. Hi, this is Kate Bush. My name's Antoine Maswan. I'm from the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Uh, hello, this is Chris and Cozy. It's on. It's on. It's gone. It's on. It's gone. It's on. It's gone. Hi, this is Lee from Sonic at uh, WCBN FM Ann Arbor. Captain Arbor. I stay away from Barry What's going on in here? Well, I told you, we're remodeling closets. I knew this was going to happen eventually, but not so soon. Come on, it's a new year, time to start over. Plus, we need more room for all your nasty construction boots. Uh, you mean stiletto heels? Whatever, they take up a lot of space, Imelda. So what's the difference between this year's closet and last year's closet? Well, um, we're going to have more student voice, regular guest editorials. What about the music and the insightful investigative reporting? Um, oh, the gossip. Yeah, that'll still be there. Oh, thank my rainbows. Great. Let's get started. Hand me a glue stick and the glitter. Welcome to Closets Are For Clothes. And we are here. So Dave stopped by again. Hi. And what a night to stop by because uh, we are actually going to be playing an audio uh, press conference. I'm um, excited. Oh, good, good. Um, it's the National Gay and Lesbian Task Force or the taskforce.org if you look it up online. Um, they did an audio press release of um, kind of celebrating or announcing or just kind of doing an update of the 30th anniversary, which was on March 26th, um, um, just last week, last Monday, a couple mm-hmm. Mondays ago, of the first time that the LGBT community, or I should say just the LNG, um, the lesbian gay community, met with White House staff. Wow. Um, and so our White House staff. Our White House staff, exactly. Well, so it's once a year that they do that? Or? Well, actually, they try. Um, this particular... Um, oh, uh, so it's not our White House staff. <laughs> right, exactly. Uh. So it actually... Actually, is um, it, it started? It, it talks about the during the uh, the I shouldn't say the rain, but during while uh, President Carter was in there, and it's mm-hmm. kind of interesting some of the things that they talk about of some of the struggles he had, but kind of like work through it. And um, there's a little hint in there of where he was like, you know, why do they need to use, you know, the president of the National Gay and Lesbian Task Force? And his secretary turned to him and said, Well, do you need to use your name? Mm. And it kind of like hit him like, oh, keep it on, never mind, like this or so. Some some brainstorms and some things that they they were talking about. One of the things that I really like about this one is it was 1977. You know, they didn't have the internet. They didn't have all these support groups and advocacy organizations. Mm-hmm. They didn't have all these things. They really just had the bars, and we were pretty much Ugh. in the closet back then about even the bars. You had to have the code to get in, and they felt strong enough or had enough self respect to be able to say. The president of the United States needs to meet with us. And they had enough presence to be able to put an agenda forward. So when they talk about what some of the things they did they did talk about, um, the military was one. Um, um, hepatitis and HIV was an interesting. HIV wasn't around in 1977 that we knew of, but they did talk about hepatitis mm-hmm. and um, how some of the stuff that they laid ground for dealing with hepatitis in the gay community um, was actually the foundation for some of the work they did with HIV. So that was kind of interesting. Um, so there's been some things of progress that we've made and some struggles as well. And there's one gentleman in there that's very vocal. So he just, uh, that that during the interview. So boy, um, you know it's amazing. But just imagine wherever you are in life right now, whether you're in college or high school or junior high, or whether you're uh, you got a you know five day a week job. Imagine yourself in your life at that time. Yes. And trying to be representing of a you know. Uh, a, a group of people, Absolutely. and at that time or earlier, as we get farther and farther into the past, it's much harder to survive as a gay person Absolutely. or a lesbian, and uh, and how we've had to crawl and struggle to get to where we are today. And Absolutely. we're not done yet. No, we are not done, and they are very clear about that. They even wow. have an agenda for the future as well. So amazing. Um, so definitely, stay tuned, and um, we'll see you in a bit. Good day, everyone, and welcome to the National Gay and Lesbian Task Force commemoration 30th anniversary of the March 26, 1997 White House meeting. At this time, I would like to turn the conference over to the Executive Director of the National Gay and Lesbian Task Force, Mr. Matt Foreman. Please go ahead. 
Uh, thank you all for today and joining in our commemoration of the historic first White House meeting with gay and lesbian leaders, which occurred 30 years ago today. We have with us, we're so honored to have with us today, nine individuals who attended that meeting, including then Assistant to President Carter, Midge Costanza. I want to express my special thanks to George Rea, who is also with us today, for suggesting this important commemoration. The 1997 White House meeting is part of the proud history of the National Gay and Lesbian Task Force. Executive directors at the time, Bruce Veller and Gino Weary, were driving forces behind the meeting, and sadly, both are now deceased. So much has changed in the last 30 years for lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender Americans. 30 years ago, no states prohibited discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation. Today, 17 do. That's not true. Well, the anyway, District Frank. of Columbia did. Yeah, I said states, Frank. Oh, fair enough. <laughs> okay. All right. oh, we consider ourselves. <laughs> okay, thanks, days. Frank. <laughs> Let me just get okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, covering nearly half the population, they now offer non-discrimination protections. Thirty years ago today, no state offered comprehensive rights to same-sex couples. Today, five do, as well as nearly a majority of the Fortune 500 companies. At the same time, there have been many obstacles and setbacks. Thirty years ago this day, the doors of the White House were open to us. Today, in, sp in spite of exponentially positive changes in public support for our equal rights, those doors are tight as they have been for nearly 20 out of the last 30 years. Thirty years ago, no federal law protected gay people. Sadly, today the same is true. Today, are we today we are going to hear from the heroes and leaders who were at that breakthrough meeting 30 years ago. At that three-hour meeting, each representative briefed White House staff on a key issue facing the gay and lesbian community, everything from immigration to discrimination in the military. Mitch Costanza, who is currently public affairs officer for the, San Diego, uh, for the district attorney of San Diego County and who was then assistant to President Carter, will start off and briefly summarize, will start off and talk about that meeting. After that, we're going to hear from eight other representatives there who will uh, spend about two minutes each talking about the issue they briefed White House staff on and reflecting on whether uh, the progress we made is what they expected, less than or more than. So let me turn this, and then we will turn it over to questions from the media. So let me start with Midge Costanza. Midge? Thank you, Matt. Thirty years ago, I received a phone call from Gene O'Leary and Bruce Veller the co-executive directors of the National Gay Task Force. And what they said was, it is time. It is time that a government we help choose and a government we help pay for cannot continue, <coughs> cannot continue to discriminate against us. We want to talk, and we want to talk in the White House. And I, I agreed. As certainly the Constitution uh, demanded that everyone uh, be uh, represented uh, under those laws, and that would include uh, gays and lesbians. So the meeting set, I left it up to Gene O'Leary and Bruce Veller to choose who they would bring to that White House meeting. I also was lucky enough to have on my staff somebody from the ACLU and who was extremely familiar and committed uh, to the issue before uh, she became a member of my staff, and that was Marilyn Haft. So she was kind of the key person on my staff who set up all these meetings. I cannot tell you uh, how excited I was that we were able to address all of these issues and what has happened since then. Gene, Gene O'Leary said that this was the first time in the history of this country that a president has seen fit to acknowledge the rights and needs of some 20 gay Americans. I made the comment that I wish the citizens of this nation could have joined me in that room to listen to the examples of oppression that I heard today. Perhaps the issue of homosexuality would be better understood and perhaps more widely accepted if they could have heard what I did. Since then, laws have been changed, 
Openly gay politicians have been elected, influence on public policy <laughs> by the gay community organizations. People seek endorsements and guidance from gay leaders. Presidential candidates want to be seen with gay leaders, but not, as Matt has mentioned, has everything been achieved. Anita Bryant back then, my resignation, as did many of the right-wing groups. More mail was generated from that meeting than any other issue during Jimmy Carter's administration. And certainly there were many issues that people wanted to uh, speak about that we addressed in that administration. I, uh, I look forward uh, to a continuance of in this country because until everybody's rights are secured, nobody's rights will be secure. Um, that's all I'd like to say, and I'll answer any questions later or when you have them. Thank you very much, Midge. Uh, I'd now like to turn over to Frank Kameny, who may have to leave the call early because he's actually speaking at a rally in front of the Capitol Run, Don't Ask, Don't Tell. Frank? Hi. Uh, yes. Um, I had, uh, well, one major issue that I addressed there, and that was one that was of concern to me over throughout many years of that period of time. It's ultimately been resolved. And that was the flat denial under Eisenhower's executive order 10450 of uh, security clearances to gay people on the claim that we were all abject submissive victims of, of, uh, of blackmail, which of course we weren't. And uh, so I spoke to that. And also, just about that time, uh, some uh, nonprofit gay groups had applied for tax exempt status and had been denied it on clearly stated moralistic homophobic grounds. Um, and I raised uh, that issue as well and uh, discussed it. Um, additionally, I've been asked to come on Charlie, Charlie Bryden, who is not here today, uh, raise the issue which is very, very, very much alive, um, and for me just later this afternoon, and that is uh, what I call the military gay ban, which um, is much older than most people think it is. I ran into it in 1943 when I enlisted, and uh, uh, commonly called Don't Ask, Don't Tell, although it wasn't called in 1977. And uh, he raised uh, that issue. So those three subjects, among others uh, brought up by other people, uh, were the ones uh, uh, we were connected with, I was, uh, uh, at that conference. Uh, thank you very much, Frank. We really appreciate that and your continued activism, as everyone on this call has continued to be an activist. Uh, our next speaker is going to be Elaine Noble. Um, I'm surprised at our age that we have uh, still some things to say. <laughs> <laughs> and Frank always has things to say, which I'm delighted to, to, to hear, Frank, and I thank you for your work. Thank um, you. And your continued work, uh, as Troy and other people that are on this panel, and Charlotte Bunch. I'm just delighted to sit here and listen to you. I remember the meeting very well. I was going into my second term, and um, was known as uh, as the avowed lesbian. I remember reading <laughs> the Boston would say in parentheses, not Suffolk, uh, Democrat Suffolk 6, it would say avowed lesbian. I sort of felt like I had holes in my clothes. And, <laughs> and uh, But um, I remember talking very naively about I was going into my second term and naively talking about electoral politics, and I remember raising the issue that it was important for us to make coalitions because our districts uh, would all be different depending upon where we were in the United States, north or south. Uh, Harvey Milk, who was elected after me, proved that as a city councilor. His district was, um, you know, he was elected because he was gay, and I was elected in spite of being gay in a very Catholic sort of uh, town of, or state of Massachusetts. But I remember making the point that we needed to make coalitions with other factions and with folks that we may not even like, uh, that we didn't have to like people to work with them politically, but that if we were going to we couldn't stand alone. 
Um, I think I didn't get a tremendous response from that, but I think that that holds true today. And I just wanted to mention that that coalition politics is something that our dear friend Barney Frank has so successfully carried on. And you see he's one of the most powerful people in Congress today because of his dogged pursuit of of making coalitions. Um, so I, I really don't have much more to say except that I was delighted to be included in the conversation. And Midge, thank you for all your work. Thank you. Thank you, thank you very much, Elaine. Uh, we're now going to hear from Marilyn Haft, who in 1977 was the Deputy Director of the White House Office of Public Liaison. Marilyn? Thank you. Um, and thank you, Midge, for actually asking me to come on to the staff. Um, Midge, actually it was Bruce Feller and Jean who went to Midge and asked that I um, come on to the staff. And most of my prior work at the ACLU where I did the um, sexual uh, privacy project and gay rights um, uh, litigation. And it seemed to me to be a very natural um, follow uh, to uh, and, and timely follow, uh, follow up. I did a number of things, not only uh, worked on um, gay rights in the White House on the, um, on the, uh, in the Office of Public Liaison, and I have to say, um, for us that I was there, I never saw a more organized, hardworking um, uh, group of people and more organized meeting than was that meeting. Everyone was incredibly prepared. Uh, we, um, it was uh, before and after that. I have never seen anything like it. And we, uh, Bruce and Jean and I, primarily, and some with Midge, we went over um, every single um, area and every single agency. And uh, the preparation was amazing and gave us ammunition afterwards for Midge and for me to follow through. Um, I obviously don't have anything substantive to talk about because I was just there as uh, somebody who was um, a facilitator. Uh, we did talk substance and a facilitator, and it was extremely impressive. And as far as... Um, where we all are today and what's happened, I think there's been enormous progress. And most of all, I see it in young people who are unashamed and unabashed about talk, walking up to me and talking about males about their boyfriends, females about their girlfriends. Um, just culturally, it is amazing, aside from what's happened, um, obviously, in the law. And there's been no mention of the sodomy laws, and um, I did some lit litigation on that before I was in the White House and was stated uh, that Lawrence v. Texas happened, and it was an amazing uh, step forward, and I think that that's, uh, that's amazing. There's a, there's a way to go, but um, I think it's been enormous um, movement culturally and in the law. Thank you. Thank you so much, Marilyn. Uh, George Rea. Okay, this is George in Sacramento. Uh, just a little background. Each of us who were attending were assigned a federal agency to research and come up with records on how the federal administration could better serve the gay population. And my agency was Health, Education, Welfare. And I sent out a message to activists around the country, what do I need to talk about? And what came back was hepatitis. Because at that time, in 77, hepatitis was rampant within the gay community. And later on, I got in trouble for talking about sex at the White House. And, um, but, you know, eventually I think something happened because federal funding went into hepatitis research, and in turn, that led to some early work uh, regarding HIV-AIDS. Mm -hmm. And um, all of the national networks that we pulled together in 77 eventually helped pull together a national network in response to the uh, AIDS pandemic. But uh, there was supposed to have been a follow-up meeting, because I'm looking at one of the press releases from the National uh, Gay Task Force, and uh, there's supposed to have been a 77 meeting, but I guess I don't know what happened. So maybe Mitch could tell us later on where there are follow-up meetings, because I went to Washington and went back home to San Francisco, and um, so I lost track of things. Okay, so um, I'll... Hang around for questions later. That's Great. Thanks, George. I think sure. it would be interesting, uh, Midge, to hear a little more about the fallout that you mentioned uh, earlier. I'm uh, happy to do that. I'll let everyone please okay. their comments first. All right. Thanks, Midge. Uh, our next uh, speaker is going to be Charlotte Bunch. 
Thank you, Matt. Um, well, my assignment um, at this meeting, uh, which was a, a really wonderful moment, was to talk about immigration policy and the rights of lesbian and gay couples, and in particular the impact on lesbian and gay couples of the lack of rights to get a green card or to be able to work or even stay and live uh, in the same country, look, U.S. citizens who were partners with uh, others around the world, and in particular the uh, Australian case, which was before the court at the time between a U.S. and Australian citizen. Um, I think that what's ironic when I think about what's happened since is that we expected these laws to change in the U.S. Uh, we thought that the, the right of people to be together if they are a loving couple was unassailable. And there have been many changes, but not in U.S. law that's come in other parts of the world, and the U.S. is really behind on this question. Uh, in particular, most of Europe now has laws that do allow for um, the partner of a citizen uh, to get work permits to live in the country uh, and to get the benefits of that. Uh, I noted when you said comprehensive uh, policies, Matt, that one of the areas where even the same-sex couple laws we have in the U.S. at the state level or the city level does not apply is immigration rights yeah, because right. this is a matter of federal policy. Mm -hmm. And so without change at the federal level, uh, U.S. citizens are very much disadvantaged. We see this even in the United Nations today where the U.N. for its uh, employees follows the laws of the government involved. That means that people who live um, and come from the Netherlands, the Nordic countries, Spain, Canada, South Africa, even some from Mexico now, uh, have the right to get equal status for their partners. But U.S. citizens who work for the U.N. do not have this right because our federal policy does not give us that right. So I think this is an area where we expected the U.S. to take leadership, uh, and it's really very far behind uh, much of the world in, in recognizing these issues. I would just note that at the same time that we're doing this today in Geneva at the Human Rights Council, uh, there is the launch of the Yogyakarta Principles, which are being launched, the principles for lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender rights based in international human rights and humanitarian law. Uh, so we do see a lot of progress in this issue being addressed, uh, and we hope that the U.S. government will catch up. Good. Thank you, thank you, and thank you for mentioning this uh, historic day. I think it's uh, very uh, a wonderful coincidence that mm -hmm. uh, that's happening today in Geneva, same time we're doing this. Thank you, uh, Troy Perry. Yes, I want to um, first thank Midge Costanza, Bruce Voller, and Gene O'Leary, who um, uh, Midge for opening, really helping us to open the White House. Um, I spoke that day on religion and homosexuality. And uh, it wasn't that the federal government, quote, could do anything, but I wanted to make sure that they understood that there were other voices beside the ones some of them were hearing um, who were different. And back over that meeting, um, when I spoke, I told them that I had a report, and it was there, but I wanted to talk from my heart. And um, I wanted them, the people who were there in the Carter administration, know what it's like to be told you're not love. I wanted them to know what it was like to have the church of your childhood dictate you can't belong if you're a homosexual. I can tell you these things because um, I know it was like what it was like to be treated myself as well as others. And um, I didn't know that at that time, 10 metropolitan community churches had been destroyed by fire. And I said then we didn't see the end of it, and we lost 21 of our churches over uh, the 36-year history of our denomination. I also told them about the death of 12 of our members, including um, um, uh, our pastor, our assistant pastor, and his partner in New Orleans in a terrible, terrible fire. And I wanted to make sure that the White House thought what it was like for all of us to live daily in that kind of an environment. I'm thankful today, Oba, because of that meeting, I really do believe this, uh, that it made all the difference in the world to open doors so that um, my part of the religious part of the community um, could talk to officers of other denominations. Uh, Jimmy Carter permitted us uh, to use the Carter Center after he left office for the first meeting on denominations and AIDS. It opened up all kinds of doors. Today, 
Um, I explained then we only had one other church beside Metropolitan Community Church that would knowingly ordain people. That was the Universal, um, the Unitarians. And um, uh, today uh, there are dozens of denominations who will now openly ordain people in this country, and there are others around the world who do the same thing. Thank you very much, Troy, and thank you for your amazing work at the Metropolitan Community Church. And our final uh, speaker today, uh, of those paid, and then we'll come back to Midge, is uh, Pokey Anderson. Pokey? Thank you, Matt. Uh, first, I want to say that I'm sorry we don't have Bruce Fuller and Gina Leary mm-hmm. here today. I know they would love to be here. and Maybe they're, maybe they're here in another way. Yes. Um, their leadership was so critical at that time in our movement. Um, and second, I want to say I expected virtually nothing from this meeting at the White House 30 years ago. I did not expect to be really heard or welcomed, but we were both heard and welcomed. The meeting went on for three hours. It was engaging and interactive, good questions from Midge and her staff. Uh, we presented facts and policy, but we also, as, as uh, you said, Troy, we spoke from our heart about things we all knew about, about the impact of discrimination yes. against us. There was a point made during the meeting that Frank had marched outside the White House 12 years earlier in those historic marches. Here we were in 1977, and Frank was inside the gates, and Midge welcomed him, saying, Frank, I'm really glad to meet you, finally. I'm just sorry it has taken so long to come into a house that belongs to you as much as it belongs to anyone in this country. Elaine Noble said that some of us had been marching outside the White House so long we wondered if there was an inside. Um, And just another mention of somebody who's not here, Barbara Giddings, Mm, who helped march in those early marches in Philadelphia and in Washington in 1965. This was a time when Anita Bryant was spewing her anti-gay rhetoric. She called us human garbage. But it was a very exhilarating time at the same time. Harvey Milk would be elected to public office within the year following in Elaine Noble's footsteps. Actually, I remember that Whenever I wondered what I should do, I'd go, well, what would Elaine Noble do? (laughs) Um, It was a time when many of us thought all we needed to do was tell our story to America, Mm. and America would respond by making good on the national promise of freedom and opportunity for all. Thirty years later, the invisibility that engulfed us has dissipated. However, the dynamic that makes one group of people into scapegoats remains very strong. I salute the open hearts and open minds that people at the highest level of American government met us with 30 years ago, and I hope to see a time like that again soon. Thank you so much, Pokey. That was very uh, Thank you. Midge, let's, uh, let's just circle back to you, and then we'll open it up for questions from the media. Uh, do you have any closing comments you'd like to make? Uh, uh, yes. The follow-up meetings from the initial meeting was uh, really an essential part of uh, the gains that were made. And, and by the way, there were changes made. First of all, the memo to the president was probably one of the most difficult I had to put together to send to him because he had admittedly during the campaign uh, for the presidency said, I don't understand uh, homosexuality. He said, but I hope to learn more about it. I am against discrimination uh, on any group of people. And so my memo to the president and... The fact that the follow-up meetings did bring them change, Civil Rights Commission, which did not include um, the, um, uh, as a matter of fact, I have it here, um, (coughs) that they had a mandate to study discrimination on the basis of race, religion, national origin, but they they denied and declined a request uh, to include discriminated basis of sexual orientation. Well, that changed. We had subsequent meetings with the Civil Rights Commission, and they included sexual orientation as a basis of discrimination. The one uh, overriding accomplishment is that never before had any meetings been set up with not just staff members, 
about the, the heads of each of these areas. Uh, the Civil Service uh, Commission, Immigration and natural, uh, Naturalization. We actually sat with the leaders of all of these different areas. And um, as a result of Troy's work, we met with the director of federal prisons. We told him uh, what was happening uh, about the uh, the segregation of of gays in prison, and sometimes, as they were quoted, for their own protection. The fact that parole and furloughs were mentioned as being issued inconsistently uh, to gays, and that changed. This was an issue introduced in the most powerful political office in the world. One raise an issue there in the White House, and it's acknowledged the issue has been raised, then uh, many, many doors open up. And while I agree that many things, really, the changes have taken place socially um, uh, more than uh, politically or in our laws, uh, the Immigration and Naturalization Service, a matter of social, I think, response, does now um, uh, resist uh, the discrimination against regular run-of-the-mill gays and lesbians, uh, whereas be previously they only allowed for visits or residency those famous gays. And that's what we've corrected now, uh, all part of the law, because you'd actually have to change through Congress uh, so many of these things that had come up. But things have changed. And I remember the one individual case on um, a military, there were 75,000 people discharged for homosexuality. Um, in 1977, what was the figure given us of discharges since World War II? And, and these are the things that changed. Uh, now we, we discuss whether or not it's uh, don't tell uh, and, and don't ask. But at that time, that wasn't even um, uh, a regard. You were just automatically discharged, 75,000. So I'll give this memo. It will be available if anybody wants it. Uh, I will send it out uh, to anyone, Matt. Okay. Um, we'll but make it I, available. Thank you. Uh, but I think that some things have changed. But, again, I think socially the changes have been driven by a strong desire of people who indicate not only self-respect but demand uh, the respect from others as a consequence of that. Well, thank you, Midge. Uh, just before we turn over the press, I'd just like to say there were three other representatives of our community at that meeting who are still alive, uh, Betty Achebe Powell, Charlie Bryden, and Bill Kelly. And each, we've been in touch with each one of them. Uh, two of them are not feeling too well uh, and couldn't be with us, and uh, someone else is out of the country. So I just say that they are all with us in spirit, and it's so amazing that we still have all of you with us today. So uh, with that, I'd like to turn it over to questions from the media. And if you could direct your questions to a specific individual, if possible, otherwise we'll let the group answer. This is Keith Orr from Common Language Bookstore and The Out Bar. You're listening to Closets Are For Clothes on WCBN FM Ann Arbor, 88.3 on your radio dial. And we'll take our first question from Lisa Left with the Associated Press. Please go ahead. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for uh, taking my question. I actually have a couple, but I'll limit it to one for now. Um, I'm wondering, at that time 30 years ago, what the reception was like in state legislatures for um, gay rights advocates. Can I speak to that? Since sure. I was the California uh, legislative advocate for the Society for Individual Rights, 74 to 76, 
and I worked on the Willie Brown Consenting Adults Bill that uh, decriminalized same-sex between consenting adults, and at that time we were also pushing uh, a state law uh, banning discrimination. Uh, in California, we had Jerry Brown as governor and uh, 22 new members of the legislature. It, it was uh, a good time to push for gay rights in the state legislature, and, and we were successful on a couple of fronts. But I can just speak about California. Um, I could add something about Texas. Sure. This is Pokey Anderson in Houston. And in uh, 1975, uh, one of our state reps attempted to decriminalize uh, homosexual activities, uh, and the uh, the discourse on the floor of the Texas legislature included very coarse bathroom type jokes. Thank you. Um, and he was voted down something like 120 to 18 mm -hmm. in the Texas uh, House. Uh, I used that opportunity to uh, actually start the Gay Political Caucus in Houston, and um, of course it took us what 28 almost 30 years before uh, the sodomy laws were decriminalized nationally, and that did come out of Houston. So. Right. Okay. Anyone else have any comments about state responses or state activity then? I guess I'm partly wondering if there were, you know, organized efforts. I'm, I'm guessing maybe there probably was, from what you're saying, organized efforts to get folks, you know, either meeting with governors or meeting with lawmakers about specific legislation. Yes, I, I'd like to jump in here, too, if I can. Uh, can you George give your name told, first? I'm Reverend Troy Perry, and I had um, set up a committee called uh, the uh, Committee for Sexual Law Reform in the State of California to work, too. And um, it was amazing to me. We went to the state capitol, and we met with politicians. The unusual story that came out of it was a gentleman came up to me, an African-American uh, and said, um, what, what, what is your baseline? What is it you want? We said, well, we want these laws taken off the books that discriminate based on sexual orientation against us, telling two adults, heterosexuals too, what they can do in their bedroom. And uh, he said, great. He said, well, I want something from you. I'm running for lieutenant governor. And uh, Merv Dimely won. Uh, and when we got our bill in, we passed it in the assembly. But when it reached the Senate, it tied. It was the first tie vote in wow. uh, history in almost uh, 50 years. And uh, he was the person, thank God, who was the lieutenant governor, who was president of our state Senate. And he cast the deciding vote. He flew uh, in specially from a meeting in Colorado, in Colorado to do it. That's right. He came they, back they, from they Colorado. the doors of the Senate. Yeah. Yep. And uh, <laughs> I was there for the vote, uh, and it was it was very very interesting. He 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 was visiting the only other African American lieutenant governor in America at that time, and uh, he had to come back home. To, they sequestered the assembly, yeah. and of course Jerry Brown signed the law. Thank God. Yeah. May 12, 1975, was signed into law by Jerry Brown. Wow. Thank you. You all have got amazing memories. Uh, <laughs> let's go on to the next uh, question, please. We'll go next to Karen Okam with In Los Angeles Magazine. Please go ahead. Hi, everybody, and thank you uh, for not only your service, but uh, for also this, uh, this setting. Uh, Mitch, I wanted to ask you, please, if you could describe how you asked President Carter or how, how this meeting came to be in the Carter White House. I mean, presumably uh, Gene and Bruce you know, couldn't just come to you and say, we'd like to do this, and you did it without permission, if you will. So could you describe your relationship with Jim and how he signed off on this meeting? Well, first of all, he didn't sign off on the meeting. I received requests for meetings from many, many different people. Actually, my first meeting that was controversial was about amnesty for those who had gone to Canada and refused to fight in the Vietnam War. And, <clears throat> excuse me, and th this meeting came about because Gene O'Leary was a delegate to the Democratic Convention that was held in New York that um, allowed Jimmy to, uh, to be the candidate for president. 
I went into Jimmy Carter when I was putting together the uh, the International Women's Year uh, Committee. I said to him I wanted to add Gene O'Leary to the list of delegates and representatives. Her title was next to her name, which was co-executive director of the National Gay Task Force. And he looked at me and he said, does she have to use her title? (laughs) And I said, do you? And he said, okay, I get the point. (laughs) And so she became a member of that committee. So Jean and Bruce, who worked with me on the the, um, platform committee, uh, called and said, okay, we helped you. Now you need to help us. And... They, they said, we want a meeting. I said, when do you want it? The date of March 26th, and then filled the different slots of representatives who would be there to speak. Um, I must say, after the, Jimmy Carter chose March 26th, 1977, as the first weekend he went to Camp D. Yes. <laughs> and everybody assumed that I had kind of way closet with all of you. And, and as soon as he left on his helicopter, I said, come on out. And it was really funny because that's what everyone assumed. I've and always assumed that he left because he knew we were coming. Uh-huh. No, Frank, because I never told him about you. Ah, I've been under a misimpression for 30 years. (laughs) But frankly, um, I didn't handle this any differently than any other meeting I was asked to conduct. If the issue was important enough, Jimmy Carter said, I want you to be the window to the nation. And and I can assure you, I took that very seriously. (laughs) And I did. Um, Lots of people came to talk to me. Uh, about different issues. This one just happened to take place that Saturday when he went to Camp David, but under no circumstances was it a secret meeting, nor did I hold this meeting um, with the direct um, uh, decision that I would keep it from him. I didn't get approval for any of the meetings that I held. Uh, could I ask a follow-up? Sure. Um, so you said you were sorry that more people didn't know or hear about it in the meeting, and and I uh, I remember that there was a lot of press after the meeting, but I'm wondering if you all took notes or if the White House took notes of that meeting and and why they weren't uh, released or were they, and I just missed them or what? Um. I think we didn't get into uh, all of the reports. We didn't, in other words, we did not attach uh, all of the uh, language, the comments, the reports that were given uh, to me and to Marilyn. Um, we we just gave a report to the president, and we had a press conference outside the White House. That's correct. And everyone was given an opportunity to ask questions. I think my reference, I was vice mayor of Rochester, New York, before I went to the White And I remember the gay community in Rochester complaining about being raped by police who would stop them and question them and then rape them um, and then put them in prison overnight. I remember those comments then. I heard them again reflected at this meeting. That's what I meant. I meant that my reaction to these different reports and the discrimination and the level of discrimination um, how personal and violent in some cases um, that was being reported, I reacted to. Not all of that was given to the press, but not because we withheld it. So is that available? Is that in, 
I mean, I would have to ask Marilyn Half. Um, Marilyn, I have our memo to the president. I do not have any follow-up um, in my file. Do you? I don't think I have those files. No, I'm sorry. This, this is. I don't know if the. No, frankly, if the White House kept them or 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 what happened, I I frankly don't. I, I oh, I'm sure that, George Bush would have kept them for yeah, sure. Well, <laughs> well, I can tell you that uh, the task this? force. This is Pokey Anderson. Mm. The task force staff asked us for speech materials that we had to send to them after the meeting. But a lot of us were speaking from very sparse notes, especially given that it went on for three hours. Right. And, you know, it was very interactive, and a lot of it was just, you know, feeling. So, so it might be available, you're saying, at the National Gay and Lesbian Task there, Yeah, there may be some notes and speech pieces there. We have a little bit in the archives, which I can make available. Mm-hmm. Okay. There on to our next question. And we'll go next to Joey DeGuglio with the Washington Blade. Hi, thanks for taking my question. I guess this would be for some of the activists who attended. It sounds like from uh, what Mitch Costanza said that it just was sort of a coincidence that uh, the president was not uh, available to meet with you all. I wondered if you knew this prior to the meeting or into the White House, and then there was sort of a sense of disappointment. Oh, well, finally we're here, and the, the uh, big cheese isn't here. I can tell you from my perspective, no. This is Troy Perry. Thank you. And um, I can tell you from my perspective, no. Um, it, was, it was the most incredible for me historical moment uh, as an activist up to that point, because here we had... Um, the forces that were trying to take away our rights starting in Florida and sweep the nation, mm-hmm. and we were in the White House. They weren't. Mm-hmm. And that, to me, was just such a historical moment. And again, the heads of the different departments of um, government um, absolutely listened to us, took notes, um, made comments. And when I left there, I absolutely felt uh, what an incredible thing that's just transpired and happened. And this gives us the thing now to build on with our federal government. Once you've done it once, then ask other presidents to meet with you and to talk with you, and um, that we've been able to do that, and I thank God for that. You know, uh, this is Elaine Noble, and Troy, I'd just like to add something to that, because I think your um, perspective of how the right wing was sweeping the country and made us a focal point not only for their largesse of raising funds, Right. But then we, as you said, your your comment of saying we were in the White House and they weren't. Well, mm-hmm. now we're not in the White House. That's right. We have to keep it in perspective that things, a pendulum swings. And just because we have to take two steps back, as we've had in the recent past, is no reason not to continue to try. And if people are in for changes, thinking that they're going to see sweeping changes in their lifetime, then this is not a movement that they should be involved in. I would disagree, if I may, this is Frank Kameny, on your very last statement. Mm-hmm. We certainly have seen sweeping change lifetime. I'm not suggesting they haven't happened, Frank. What I am suggesting is that um, it's almost a natural rhythm for when we make a few steps forward. Oh, yeah, of course. They use it as a backlash yeah, of to course. really knock us against the wall. And I'm saying 30 years now, we were so happy to be jumping up and down and trying out the chairs in the White House and thrilled that we were there. And we want to raise our voices when, in reality, uh, all of us now have uh, the stark reality. Um, Not only military problems, but social and economic problems are caused by the very people who were who were wishing us uh, death then. Yes. Yes. And I remember one of the most moving things for me, Troy, was when that New Orleans fire happened. It 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 radicalized me, and there were only a few Mm -hmm. in the country who would raise money to bury the dead uh, folks. And I and I believe, Troy, you can speak to this. There were a couple of straight guys that loved them, so they were there. And even their parents wouldn't bury them. It was so stunning to me that even in death, people would deny their own children. I mean, I was just... And there was one Methodist minister who said, you can have a memorial service for only an hour, but hurry up and get out. I don't want my church burned down. I mean... Some of that has changed, certainly, in institutional religion. 
But I think what has happened is the ripple effect has occurred, and it has sprung out throughout the country where this tremendous seed of hatred sown by people who are politically astute in manipulating insecure people. Uh, We're probably the best fundraiser the right wing has and will have um, in the Republican Party. And nobody seems to want to address that, you know. I mean, Carl Rove and all of those foolish people, maybe what goes around comes around. Maybe it's finally coming around because God don't like us. But um, I just think it's ironic, (laughs) you know. Good preaching. (laughs) I said good preaching. (laughs) This is Charlotte. God doesn't like ugly. I like that. (laughs) This is Charlotte Bunch. I just wanted to also respond to Joey's point from the Washington Blade. I don't think that any of us expected that President Carter himself would be at the meeting. And I think if you um, live in Washington, you understand that a meeting with the advisor is a meeting with the president um, in the sense that it's a meeting to make your your voices heard to the president. So I, I think that I also agree with the previous speakers that it felt like a very important step forward. And Midge has described some of the follow-up. I would just add to what Elaine was just saying that I think one of the important things here is that that I don't know that we expected the kind of large-scale politicalization around this issue mm-hmm. that has happened in the past 30 years and the use of it politically, um, not only by the right wing here, but internationally. Yes. And I, I just want to bring us back to the international mm-hmm. component that, that actually mm-hmm. at the Beijing Women's Conference, for example, in 1995, when the lesbian rights issue was raised, we actually gained a lot of allies who did indeed respond. They weren't God, but they didn't like ugly either. And they, <laughs> they did receive the ugliness um, mm-hmm. of some of the comments. So I think that this, this kind of um, event opened us to a larger public, and we've now seen that uh, a, a more polarized debate, but also one in which that polarization has also increased our allies. Uh, so exactly. I think that the right-wing reaction has not only... <clears throat> We're not only their best fundraiser, but their reaction has also mobilized a lot of people uh, who weren't initially behind this issue. Lesbian and gay rights were important, um, and who now see um, from the reaction to it why it's important. Charlotte, don't you think that many gay activists don't realize what a politically conservative country we actually dwell in compared to other countries? Uh, absolutely. I think that's why I wanted to make that point initially, that uh, the U.S. is very far behind on lesbian and gay rights and many other issues in the international arena. Today is also the signing of the Disability Declaration uh, at the United Nations, and the U.S. is not signing. Um, once more, I think U.S. activists don't realize how far behind we are, and certainly behind Europe, but also behind many countries, sometimes in Latin America and other parts of the world as well. That's correct. I, this is Troy Perry again. I visited with the government of uh, President Lula in Brazil. I flew to Brasilia a year and a half ago uh, because of the White House meeting 30 years ago and the subsequent meetings that have been in the White House with other presidents. Um, I was um, met with the justice minister, two members of the cabinet, the president's cabinet in uh, Brazil, because of their work in trying to bring, um, adding one of the reasons for not murdering us, sexual orientation, uh, to the United Nations. Our own government won't do anything around right. it, uh, but Brazil has. Exactly. And uh, I found out that President Lula gives a, an award away every year uh, for the best whole or TV show or radio show against homophobia. And uh, so you're absolutely correct. Uh, I, I travel all over the world, and I talk to politicians everywhere I go. And um, this country, at one time, we were leaders. Now, it's just awful. Yeah, there was a statement at the recent Human Rights Council uh, on lesbian and gay rights, rights of sexual orientation, gender identity, signed by 54 countries. Yes. Um, and the U.S. was them. Right. Okay, why don't, let's, uh, let's th- thank you all very much. Let's move on to the next question. <laughs> And we'll take a follow-up question from Lisa Left with the Associated Press. Please go ahead. Okay. I have uh, one quick question and then one that's changing course a little bit. Um, just to clarify, have there been um, any comparable meetings um, under the current administration? <laughs> <laughs> no. No. <laughs> 
Now, there have been other meetings in the White House yes, um, with this. In the, during the Clinton administration, but uh, none under the, did I, did I recall, under the Bush administration. And, and, and I, the may I sure, they've, they've been requested, yes? Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, okay. yes. Oh, yes. May I okay. just point out, this is Pokey Anderson. Hi. Uh, you know, there's this question of, are we going to have gays in the military? Well, of course, there are always going to be gays and lesbians in the military. It's just a matter of under what conditions. And will there be gay people in the Well, yes. But the question is, under what conditions? Will they be welcomed openly as open gay men and lesbians or uh, come in through the back door? Mm -hmm. um, and we had a story that died rather quickly, uh, I guess, what, a year or two ago, of uh, Jeff Gannon, who was a, a supposedly a reporter, but it turned out he was actually advertising his wares as a gay male prostitute on the internet. Um, and he went in, the, in and out of the White House about 200 times. Yeah. Um, under wow. you know nobody's really answered that question. <laughs> Why and all that? I think those things are all trivia. Um, uh, totally. I think the main thing is in the broad and despite opposition, which has come up from what I call the nutty fundamentalists. <laughs> who have gained a voice. Nevertheless, the advances, certainly in the just sort of a half century that I have been involved in this, have been absolutely beyond belief. We could not have conceived in the 90s that we would be where, be where we are now. And I think to make much of um, a lot of uh, uh, ranting, raving religious nuts, uh, you have to pay attention to them, but to let that uh, be taken as negating the enormous progress that we have made in that period of time and in the 30 years since that White House conference is simply to deny reality. That's correct. I don't think anybody's don't denying fuss, Don't fuss and fume about those and overlook the larger picture. I, I don't think... I Lisa, did you have a Lisa, did you have a follow-up question? I did. Thank, thank you. I was wondering if, uh, Marilyn, if you wanted to... If you can elaborate a little bit more on the point you made about um, how different it is for young people who are coming out today and how that's a big sign of progress. If you, if you can talk about the role that um, young gay men and lesbians play in um, political activism. Um, all I can say is, you know, to follow up with what Frank just said, I think the door was opened by all of these um, meetings, by all of the progress and activism that were uh, the seeds that were sown all those years ago um, to the point where, uh, as I said before, it's, it's, not, it's not unlike the women's movement, um, which um, Amidj and I both and probably on this call were part of. Um, and I look, I, I have a daughter now, and I look at her and I look at her friends, and they don't even know that there are any questions. And I, right. think, and I, you know, and I look at Wall Street. I mean, never were there any women on Wall Street. I'm just uh, to name one mm -hmm. area, and that's like the most recent that's broken through. Um, and similarly, I think in, in gays are the same thing. I think the walls were broken, the doors were opened, so that when they were growing up, they did not have to be ashamed, and they are not. They don't almost even know. Uh, you know, what those feelings were like for, for everybody. And I, think, um, and I think what's interesting to me about, about it is that because they take so much for granted, only some become activists. They don't even right. feel the same. You know, uh, when um, I was working with the gay movement, uh, the people that w came out w came out... Uh, to be activists, and now it's just uh, there's almost no need. I'm not saying they're not there; they're there, but it is just um, it's just you know because they choose to, not sometimes because they feel that their identity makes them do it. It's just that's my my sense of what's going on. This is Troy Perry. I just wanted to say too, uh, at the last march on Washington, the thing I just couldn't help it. I became very emotional over it. I went over to the Pentagon and looked at 800 school buses mm -hmm. that had brought the Straight and Gay Alliance members mm -hmm. in for the March on Washington. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, in talking to young people, they have the Internet today. We didn't. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and kids today use the Internet in a way that's just incredible, like everybody's using it now. So it's, uh, 
kids are still coming out of the closet, thank God, and uh, joining our movement, but in a different way than we did it 30 years ago. I, I think this is George Ryan. Can I add something real quick? Yeah. Uh, I'm in Sacramento, and when I get off this, I'm going to the state capitol building because today is the seventh annual Queer Youth Lobby Day at the oh. state capitol. 400 youth from around the state are in Sacramento to march the halls and talk to representatives. So youth uh, are active. Uh, this is Midge. I, I want to say that what I received after that meeting was a mixed bag. Obviously, it led to my leaving that administration. I believe that meeting, plus the meeting on amnesty, my meeting on, uh, as we referred to it then, abortion, and uh, this um, uh, this gay rights meeting and, and the welfare women, I, I knew that I had to do what I wanted to do to make my stay at the White House um, as productive as possible. But I also knew that I'd be paying the price uh, of all of these things. But nothing would lead me, I didn't think, uh, to leave the House more than this meeting. That was not a downfall for me, by the way, to leave um, an office next to the Oval Office and feel I could look back and say I actually was able to help in some way bring justice uh, not only to gays and lesbians but to women and, and every other issue that I embraced. The fact of the matter is the art of that was every meeting subsequently that I was part of in the White House, whether it was the 4-H club or kids from high schools or whether it was the peace movement or the environmentalists, someone always came up to me and said, thank you, thank you so much for that meeting in the White House. They would say to that I brought them a level of pride. And someone said to me that it made it easier for him to come out to his family. Now, I'm sure this is representative of a whole bunch of people that I didn't talk to. But the one word that kept coming... I don't know what the hell it is, Bill. I've been smoking this pot all day and I still can't get high. What kind are you smoking? Well, oh, man.